it's appropriate to open up this episode with the song Creepy Heap from the Deep. It's from the band Molokai. It's on their album Rack Attack 2.0. You can find them at molokaiu.bandcamp.com. This song appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio with their permission. Welcome to the podcast where we celebrate the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I am your host, writer, and producer, Derek M. Cook. Glad to have you here. This week on Monster Kid Radio, going a little outside the Monster Kid Radio wheelhouse just a touch by covering a movie from 1971. We're talking about the movie Zat from director Don Barton. Zat is an incredible motion picture. An entire town goes berserk when a giant underwater creature attacks all human life. Zat is a frightening experience. Don't miss Zat. I'm not doing this by myself. I became an in-pit agent along with Chris McMillan from The Shadow Over Portland. He's back on the show to talk about Zat, and there's a very specific reason why we decided to talk about this movie, and you're going to find out what that is when we start talking about the film itself. Just as a heads up, this episode will have some minor spoilers for the movie Zat. So if you haven't seen Zat, and that's Z-A-A-T, if you haven't seen this movie, we are going to ruin a few plot points and a few setups here and there. We don't spoil the ultimate ending of the film, although we're not overly subtle about how the film ends. So just as a heads up, spoilers ahead. And you're going to find that out for yourself right after this. From billions of light years away, I approach your planet. The birds of the air, the animals of the forest, they shall be my ears and my eyes. And because I see your most secret acts, you will know me as the beast with a million eyes. From worlds beyond comes a weird and an intelligence, a beast with a million eyes, making of a woman's dog, her attacker, setting a fire flames of wild desire, making of a man's friend, a violator of every code of decency, guilty of acts you'll never believe. See, a man fight against supernatural forces for the girl he loves. See, a beast with a million eyes control a ship from outer space. One of the most fantastic terror thrills the screen has ever brought you. See, the beast with a million eyes. Do you enjoy movies like Carnival of Souls, The Mole People, Black Sunday, and The Tingler? Do you find yourself late at night reading magazines such as Film Max, Chiller Theater, or Monster Bash? Do you love vintage television programs like Sky King, Outer Limits, and The Time Tunnel? Do you find yourself surfing the net looking for the next monster movie festival or expo? Do you enjoy hearing anecdotes, cinematic details, and unusual insights into some of your favorite movies? If you answered yes to any of the above, you are encouraged to join your host, Vince Rotolo, as he examines some of the latest horror, sci-fi, and cult theatrical releases, new DVDs to add to your collection, and of course, the old classics, both good and bad. He even interviews people throughout B-Moviedom, 
So tune in to BMovieCast at BMovieCast.com. Monster Kid Radio wants you. If you have wiki skills, here's the thing. Monster Kid Radio is going to be putting together a Wikipedia Cyber Street team. If you are skilled in the ways of Wikipedia, if you can speak their language and code their coding, we would like to ask you for your help. Now, this is not a formalized campaign or anything like that, but if you ever hear anything about any of the topics that we talk about here on Monster Kid Radio that you think needs to be on Wikipedia, well, go ahead and do it. I'm just trying to get more information about these movies out into the general public, kind of make it a little bit more common knowledge, because well, the more people who know about these movies and know the trivia about these movies, the better. The more monster kids there are, well, the more people we get to go see awesome movies with and talk about movies with and go to conventions. I mean, it's part of our spreading the word and fighting the good fight for these films. So if you know how to use Wikipedia and you hear somebody mention something about Nosferatu, Creature from the Black Lagoon, House of Wax, Destination Interspace, any movie that we've talked about here on the show, we'd like to encourage you to update Wikipedia with that information. And now, coming to this theater, one of the most incredible stories of modern time. Zat, Invasion of the Walking Catfish. A crazed scientist, Dr. Leopold, is convinced he can turn humans into fish. He proves it by transforming himself into a horrible, revengeful, killer fish. Lou, I thought you said that was a fresh water spray. Yeah, I did. Why? Something matter? There sure is. There's an extremely high content of radioactive material. Yeah, well, what does that mean? In your language, pollution. He creates a new deadly radioactive substance and pollutes rivers and lakes. His goal? To pollute the entire universe. Fish grow giant size and attack all human life. An entire town goes berserk in a rampage of death and violence. No one is safe. Zat is a frightening Zat tells it all. You won't want to miss Zat. Positively no one admitted during the last 15 minutes. In 1971, some people got together to make a monster movie. They never really made a, a feature-length film on their own before, but they put their heart and soul and passion into it. And in 2015, today's guest on Monster Kid Radio ended up visiting one of the locations that they shot at 
I'm talking about Chris McMillan and Zat, not necessarily in that order. Chris, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me back. Always a pleasure to be here. Hey, you've been on not too long ago when we did the Creature Roundtable, so it's been a couple of weeks. Yeah. And between then and now, you – well, actually, I think while you were there – you recorded with us. You were in Florida not too long ago. Yeah, I think we recorded the weekend before I left. Okay. And um, then I headed to Florida, visited my folks, and found myself in Green Cove Springs. Did you find any, you know, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but did you find any walking catfish? No, I did not. Whew. Although they do have a sign saying, watch out for snakes. Well. Wrong movie, I know, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the movie Zat, 1971, a little outside the Monster Kid Radio wheelhouse, but darn mm -hmm. it, it's a monster movie, and it's got a connection to, well, what I consider one of the mainstays of classic monster movie dumb. So let's talk about it here on the show. When was the first time you saw it? It was back when the uh, DVD Blu-ray combo was released. Yeah. I was doing reviews for a website called Planet Fury, and I got sent the screener. You know, I had not seen the Mystery Science Theater 3000 version. I hadn't seen the Elvira version. I think it was released by Shout Factory. So I came into this knowing what the movie was, but having never seen it. And, you know, it's a lot of fun. It's not the best movie ever made, but boy, they really, for what they had, they really did a good job. Yeah, they really did. And you mentioned Mystery Science Theater 3000. I believe when they put it out, they released it as Blood Waters of Dr. Z, mm -hmm. which this movie's had a couple of different titles like that. Think of in Canada, they called it Hydra at one point, Legend yeah. of the Zap Monster, Dr. Z. So it, it's had a few different titles. But yeah, the this DVD Blu-ray combo that I have, it's called Zat. And I was surprised at the level of care and work that went into that release considering oh, yeah. what this movie is wow some people yeah. really loved this movie <laughs> um well i think what happened is uh the director got it back uh dan barton got a hold of the negatives finally and put out and made sure that they did this dvd blu-ray release because apparently this is considered a lost film that's been refound because okay. the distributor that he was going through, the national distributor, went bankrupt and the film ended up locked up in their vaults for years. Huh. So, you know, he finally got it back and put out this uh, restored version from the 35 millimeter prints he got. And it just looks gorgeous. It really does. And this is something that I'm sure we'll talk about. But as you're watching the movie... There are a few cultural things here and there, yeah. but overall, I feel like this movie's aged pretty well for a low-budget monster movie. It has. It really has. If you've seen the restoration, they really made everything look bright and vibrant again on it. It's, it's beautiful looking. Sometimes to the film's detriment. I mean, to be fair, there's one scene in particular, an effects scene, where it's been cleaned up so much, you can certainly tell. That's a big old patch of liquid latex or foam latex <laughs> on the guy's arm as he's giving himself yeah. an IV or a shot with the world's longest needle. Yeah, that was a little overkill as far as the needle goes. I mean, I'm sure they were trying to creep <laughs> people out with it, but oh my God, six-inch long needle? <laughs> it's like what they got their hands on. When yeah. you listen to the commentary track, and I don't know if you did, but when you listen to the commentary track, they talk about how they really just whatever they could get donated to them or get real cheap is what they use to make the movie with. So I'm sure somebody just had these needles sitting around somewhere. 
Yeah, probably a veterinarian because that's like a horse needle or something. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> but yeah, if you watch the scene where he gives himself a shot, you can see this good like three, four inch long patch of latex glued on his arm. Oh yeah, yeah, that's pretty obvious. And he slips the needle in there and like, man, yeah. Uh, I'm glad the rest of the movie looks awesome, but yeah. You can forgive that because let's be honest, his computer panel for uh, you know the, the holding <laughs> thing has a rotary phone dial on it. Oh, it's awesome. It's great. But you, you know they're just taking, well, you know, this will look good. You know, they painted a few light bulbs, different colors, and all sorts of stuff. They had the old swimming lap timer. I mean, <laughs> it's just, yeah, I could see that being a anything we can do because, you know, I mean, they didn't have money for this thing. No, not at all. Uh, yeah. I think the budget was like $50,000 and they had to spend another 25000 for prints and advertising stuff. Yeah. That's not much. Fortunately, um, Barton, he had his own film company. He was mm-hmm. kind of doing a George Romero thing. You know, they did commercials, they did training films, and they just decided to make a movie. So at least he had the cameras. That's true. Now, you know, I said at the beginning of this, these guys hadn't really made a movie before, but some of them were involved in the industry on the industrial side of things, pulling Romero, mm-hmm. like you said, doing the commercial films, uh, industrial movies, things like that. And they continued to do that after this film as well. So, yeah, you know, at least they had the equipment. They had the know-how. They knew how to hit the on and off button on some of the stuff, <laughs> you, you and, know, which is a lot saying a lot for people back in the 60s and 70s, you know, people outside of the studio system, mm-hmm. you know, they had the equipment and the gear and the wherewithal to make a feature length monster movie for us to enjoy what 30, 45 years later. Yeah. And by God, they made the movie, you know, yeah. it's one thing to say, yeah, one of these days I'm going to make a movie, but these guys actually went out and did it mm-hmm. for no money. Uh, they did it just because they wanted to. And, you know, you can you can complain about the technical glitches and stuff and yeah. how cheesy it all looks. But, you know, damn, first off, they made a movie. Second off, they made a monster suit that goes underwater and works. Yes. <laughs> it works well enough. For a low-budget monster movie to take a monster suit and actually submerge it mm-hmm. and actually have the guy breathing underwater while wearing the suit, I mean, that's kind of ballsy. Yeah, no, that it, and this, you know, like I said, it you can tell the actor's probably struggling a little bit in that suit when he's in the water, but it's not like it fell apart or anything. Well, not on screen anyway. Well, no, actually, I, I did I did a little looking. Jacksonville dot com did an article back in what was it October of two thousand nine, and they basically saw the Zat suit in Don Barton's garage sure it was it was still there it still held up pretty much what i was referring to is while they were actually producing the film the Mm -hmm. suit would start to fall apart so they'd have to do a a quick rebuild every day and according to ron kivett who was the guy who made the suit he also worked on other parts of the film but he was the guy who made the suit Mm -hmm. and he said that if you watch the movie you can see the suit getting bigger and bigger as you go along because they just had to keep putting more silicone and paint on it (laughs) in order to keep it together yeah. Which I can imagine, low budget, you know, you're underwater doing stuff, moving around. Yeah, I mean, and, and I've heard somewhere that the actor actually had a tank in it, in the suit mm-hmm. so he could breathe underwater. Yeah, I think I and, read that too or, or heard that on the commentary. Yeah, and I mean, come on, there was, you know, you've got air bubbles leaking everywhere out of that suit at times. Uh-huh. So that's got to be another strain on it. So, yeah. But, and I you mean, can't see. I mean, the guy can barely see through the nose holes of the monster suit. 
Mm-hmm. You know, those eyes were not functional. In fact, there's one shot where you see a profile of the monster head, and you're seeing right through both eye holes to the wall behind him. <laughs> there's just nothing there. Yeah, that's right. But, hey, the suit worked. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it's a good-looking monster, I feel like, for what it is. Oh, yeah, it is. It's a great-looking monster, and, I mean, it worked. Mm-hmm. So... Kudos <laughs> to them. Well, a second ago when I said there are some cultural things, you kind of grimaced a little bit. Yeah. And, and I want to get ahead of this. I want to put it out there on the table quickly and then move on. But this is from 1971, small town Florida. Mm-hmm. There's a black man in the role of one of the heroes. Yeah. But. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a racial slur or two in here. And yeah. Yeah, that's when everybody's panicking because of the walking catfish we didn't get to see taking over the town. And it's, yeah, it's kind of like, eh. It's, it's the one thing that makes me kind of slam on the brakes and go, what? Everything else I'm on board with, you know, walking cat, you know, walking monster, you know, it's everything that's happening here. I'm on board until that happens. And I'm like, oh, come on. You had to go there. But. You know, is it a product of its time? It's the early 70s. I don't know. I, I don't think we can damn the entire movie for this. I just wanted to get ahead of it. Especially as um, Rex, especially as he's really treated pretty well by the like, even the sheriff. Yeah. You uh, know? Mm-hmm. So Rex is the marine biologist. He's played by Gerald Cruz. And mm-hmm. while the sheriff, uh, Sheriff Krantz, played by Paul Galloway, does call him boy quite a bit. Mm-hmm. There's still a kind of a working relationship here. The use of the word boy, I mean, I know it's it's culturally insensitive, but you, you get the feeling that the sheriff calls everybody boy. I do get that vibe, yeah. You know, it, it's not meant to degrade Rex. He's questioning what he's doing for a while, but then, you know, they, they become part of a team. They become a team. They really do. And then when some other characters turn up, I mean, they view him as a total equal. I mean, he's part of the team. Yeah, and... And honestly, the other thing that really kind of is culturally sensitive to me is how Martha gets treated. The um, female in pit. I mean, she's basically a Stepford wife. She is. She's the secretary that happened to get in the car to go along on the adventure. She's, mm-hmm. There's not much going on with her either. Yeah. And you see them pull up in their little RV and it's like, those things don't have two bedrooms. And then you realize, oh, and she's sleeping with her partner. Of course. It's like male impint agents get assigned an RV, a little swamp buggy, and a hot blonde. It is the 70s. Yes, it's the 70s, but you just kind of go, really? You, you had to go there. Yeah. Uh, but, well, like you said, it's the 70s. It's the 70s, and all the movies that we talk about here on Monster Kid Radio, I mean, they're all products of their time. It's a lot of times talk about how thrilling it is to watch these movies and get a snapshot into the time and place and the society that these movies were filmed in. And a lot of times I look at that with, I mean, I wasn't there, so I can't really say nostalgia, but there's mm-hmm. this kind of like, oh, wow, we're learning all this stuff. Unfortunately, there's some of the, the dark side of history in this film, but it's not enough to override the enjoyment I got out of the movie. I mean, you can even cut that one bit of dialogue out with the racial slur, and you're good. It's one of those things you kind of have to accept when you're watching movies from that time, you know, or, or further back. There's things in them that just make you go really, you know, make you feel uneasy nowadays. It's kind of a moment where someone accidentally scrapes the chalk too hard in the blackboard and that squeak comes out and you go, oh, 
that's a really good way to put it. That's exactly the feeling I had the first time I saw this movie because I had no idea that was coming uh, with, with the racial slur. And mm-hmm. yeah. it made me very uncomfortable. And, and I mean, it still does, even though I knew it was coming the last time I watched it. But still, it, it's, a, it's a regional thing, too. And I think one of the things about Zat that I find fascinating is that it's one of these films that was shot in a very specific region. And because of how the film industry was back then, it didn't get widespread distribution. It got yeah. shown around a bunch of theaters in the South. And mm-hmm. it became a Southern thing. People in Florida all clambered around going to the premiere of Zat and seeing it at the theater. And when it got shown on television, you know, just people really embraced this movie mm-hmm. as this local thing this regional filmmaking isn't something you'd see a lot of now but i love that in the 60s and 70s and even into the 80s a little bit you had this regional filmmaking kind of movement mm-hmm. you, know, you have movies like this you have the films of don doler you have these regional filmmakers that become i don't know these film magnets in their hometown but nobody yeah. else really knows about them. It takes them 30, 35 years for the rest of the world to find out about these movies. Yeah. And, and you don't get that anymore nowadays. I mean, it's exactly. really hard for someone who's a local filmmaker, you know, to even get their film into a local theater. You exactly. Know, it's, it's costly. You know, it's it's not easy to do. And it's sad. I, I, I miss those days where you can actually go see a movie like that or go see a Roger Corman film for a week over at a theater because they would do those. And now they don't, it's all the big blockbusters and they have to be in and out in a certain time. It's, it's sad. It's sad. I would settle for taking my hypothetical time machine and going back to the premiere of Manos, the hands of fate just for that reason. Oh yeah. That would be amazing. <laughs> you know, Manos and Zat. I think that's probably a little better quality wise, but you know, yeah. Oh man. Zat needed Torgo. How amazing would that have been? <laughs> Anyway. Oh, uh, yeah, as the henchman. Oh, perfect, yes. <laughs> yes, that would be awesome. <laughs> I see you mentioned Don Barton as the director. I mentioned Ron Kivett. He designed the monster suit. He was also one of the people who came up with the story of the movie. Mm-hmm. And then we mentioned a few of the actors. Like we said, Gerald Cruz was the marine biologist of Rex. Yeah. Who really is one of the heroes of the movies. If it wasn't for him, that blonde you were talking about would have died. Well... Maybe. I think, uh, yeah. There, well, she would have died a different way, maybe. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if we should skip ahead to the end because we haven't even discussed the film. But No, I that, know. I know. <laughs> yeah. But honestly, that's one of the bleakest endings I've ever seen in a, in a monster movie. Well, it was a 70s thing, though, too. In early 70s, you know, things kind of have this open ending, kind of dark, kind of, oh, my God, you know, kind of dark ride thing. I don't know. It ends bleakly. I mean, oh, jeez. But it opens great. I love the opening. It's this mad scientist <laughs> thing going on, and I mean, I love it. I mean, there's this narration by Wade Popwell, who would go mm-hmm. on to play uh, the. Mo- well, was it Wade that played the did the narration, or was it? No, it was uh, Marshall Grower. I think it was Grower yeah. who did the narration. He played the doctor. Mm-hmm. From what I, I'm pretty sure he did all the narration through it. Yes. Yeah, they've they've gotten the science lesson of the 50s gone haywire in that opening. It's <laughs> a good point. And he looks terrible. He looks sick. Like, this, his makeup is all very pale and gaunt. Yeah. Well, you know, hey, that's what experimenting with a radioactive chemical will do to you. <laughs> Dr. Leopold has been wronged mm-hmm. by so many people, and he's got this crazy wonky to-do list. <laughs> In the form of this 
giant circle graph thing, which I think it looks really cool on screen. It almost gives it a an occult like feel to it, even though there's no magic happening here at all. Yeah, but it's this yeah, it's this circular calendar <laughs> thing. And you're just like how does this work? But why does this? Well, he is a mad scientist, so yeah, that's true. So he's there is a method to his madness, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, yeah, he's just walking around. The actor never says anything. It's just all this internal dialogue for like what fifteen minutes, yeah, which is a great way to save production costs because it means you don't need a sound guy. That's true. You know, for all of his scenes, it's all going to be done as voiceover later. And not only that, they got a whole lot of footage from Marine Land so they can show all these different fish. Yes. <laughs> and yes. we do get introduced to the walking catfish. We do. And I feel like, and I think this is this is really what happened. They wanted to make this movie about giant walking catfish. Yes. And we we see some of the walking catfish, but... I guess as production went along, it just kind of turned into something else. Well, they actually did shoot some giant walking catfish uh-huh. footage. In fact, you can see it in the film. There's one scene, yeah, one shot. Yeah, and, and they said that, you know, according to IMDb, the effects look too corny, so they ditched them. I'm not sure about that. Well. <laughs> I think the problem was they couldn't get the walking catfish to do what they wanted to do. True. You ever try training a walking catfish? Uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like you speak from experience. Oh, no, not at all. Oh, okay, I, okay. I, I, I don't have walking catfish in my secret lab below. <laughs> what secret lab? What secret lab? Oh, shoot. Did I say that? No, I was wrong. <laughs> but if you look at the way the walking catfish walk, they're just flipping around. I don't know how much direction you can give a walking catfish and go, you know, hey, go into the barn. You know, it's not like um, a lizard where you can go, oh, here, we'll put a piece of meat in this and it'll poke its head through. You know, I think I liked this movie better because it was a man in a suit. I'm okay without the walking catfish. Well, from what I understand, the walking catfish was supposed to be part of the movie. I mean, it was yeah. still going to be Leopold as the monster using his little squirt bottle of Zat to make the fish mutate. And then we would see it. Because if you notice the dialogue during the um, – Scene with the racial slur, it's all about them worrying about these catfish invading their homes, which we never get to see. Right. I I wish they had done it. I don't care if it was corny looking or not. I wish they had, because that would have been awesome. (laughs) Giant walking catfish. All right, so Dr. Leopold is this mad scientist. He's got this crazy to-do chart. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And he turns himself into the zap monster. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> no problem, lowers himself into the tank, and boom, he's off and swimming. Yep. <laughs> Even though he's become a monster, he's still cognizant enough. I mean, he's still smart. Mm-hmm. So he can still read that crazy to-do chart. And he's got a, a few pictures of people that he has to go knock off because they treated him poorly when he was Dr. Leopold. I, I still don't know the depths to which they treated him poorly, how they wronged him. Well, one of them wouldn't give him a human guinea pig. Well, that, that would do it, I suppose. That, you know, well, that's like, yeah. And I think the other one just kind of kicked him out of wherever he was doing his sciencing before he went mad. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know if that's a word, sciencing. But it, it is was. today. It is now. So, you know, I mean, you get very briefly in voiceovers how they wronged him. So he's off to 
drown a few people. Well, actually, you know, he drowns. That was actually surprising. His first victim is with his family out on the boat. That was pretty intense. Yeah, because he drowns a, what, 12, 13-year-old boy. Yeah. It's like, wow, they went there? Holy cow. They they really, well, again, it's the 70s. I mean, it, I think for me, when I think about children in harm and movies from the 70s, I immediately go to Assault on PC-13. Oh, God, yeah. Where, where, that, the, where the little girl, you know. That was spoiler. Just, yeah, but, <laughs> spoiler. But wow, that yeah, that's that's the go-to one. It was a, it was a different time, man. It was the seventies, and and things were a little grittier, I suppose. I mean, people talk about grim and gritty today. I mean, look at some of the movies from the seventies, and you yeah. got some of that creeping into that, kind of flopping around like a walking catfish. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what made some of the movies in the eighties a little scarier when it involved kids, like the Monster Squad, because we still had that image that anything can happen in a movie. Yes. Nowadays, you don't have that. It's like, oh, a kid shows up, he's going to live. Right, and there's no threat of real danger. Yeah, you just yeah. know that the movie maker's not going to go there. But it's not graphic in Zat. In fact, that's one of the things they talk about in the commentary track. They didn't want to lay her on a lot of sex. They didn't want to lay on a lot of violence because they wanted this to have a wide release. They wanted people to be able to enjoy it and see it. They didn't want them to deal with ratings and all that. Yeah. So, you know, they really did dial it back. There were a couple of shots. There were a couple of scenes. You mentioned that blonde earlier. They could have gone full. They could have had nudity. There was a shower scene. Oh, yeah, there was. And, I mean, they teased it real well because she's getting out of her red jumpsuit, and then the phone rings, and she zips it back up. It's yep. like, ha-ha, fooled you. Exactly, yeah. I mean, you see her in her underwear, and that's about it for just a second. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's it's not it. very long at all. No. The shower scene itself, it's through a very opaque shower curtain, so you don't see anything. Yeah, it's it's as tame as a TV scene. But it know? conveys everything that you need. Mm-hmm. You know, they still pulled it off. And as far as the violence and the blood goes, there's a couple of close shots of what the monster did to this guy that he took out with his family. Mm-hmm. But it's not overly graphic. It's not super bloody. Yeah, I think the only real bloody scene you see is when uh, the monster's rampaging after being stabbed by uh, Walker. Yeah, the, the impit agent. And he rips open a kid, you know, another teenager who's on a who's on a porch swing with his girlfriend. That gets a little bloody, and then blood on some shirts and things like that. But it's yeah. still, it's not gory. Oh no, it's not gory at all. You know? And you know, maybe that was a function of what they had available to them, you know, effects budget wise or whatever. But I'm glad they focused on the monster suit and not so much on the blood and gore. I mean, if it was a super bloody, gory movie, we probably wouldn't be talking about it here on MKR. No, it's it, it, it wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't no. have been half as fun. No, exactly, exactly. So we've got this Dr. Leopold turning to the monster, and like you said earlier, Marshall Grauer played the doctor, but Wade Popwell is the man in the suit, and he's going mm-hmm. around killing people. We've got the marine biologist and the sheriff, and at the beginning of the movie, when we're introduced to them, they're talking about what's going on in the water, and, you know, this is probably a holdover from the walking catfish threat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, there's something in the water, the Rex finds there's some sort of radioactivity all of a sudden, (laughs) which it's your go-to mad scientist method to make mutants. Exactly. There's a scene where he's casting a net in to collect some of the fish and you know <laughs> leopold decides oh no you're not going to be catching fish i identify with them and that's when rex sees the monster mm-hmm. which was really nice because i mean actually it's not like it's being hidden and nobody knows what it is there's a big big monster out there yes and that's where he calls the in pit agents 
INPIT stands for the Internation Phenomena Investigating Team, and man, they're cool. <laughs> Matching jumpsuits. I love the logo slapped on the side of the Winnebago. Um, yeah, they come out of that thing in those bright red jumpsuits, and you're almost blinded. It's like, oh, wow. God, I want one. I, I'm not into cosplay or anything like that, but if I were... <laughs> How awesome would that be? I want an in-pit jumpsuit so bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And and they're hauling that uh, six-wheeled <laughs> dune buggy, water buggy thingy behind them. Oh, it's so gloriously cheesy 70s. I love it. But I it know. still holds up today. It's great. I love it. It works. It <laughs> You just kind of watch it go, okay, hey, sure. That's how the in-pit works. <laughs> I love it, man. I want to see if I can get a good screenshot of the input logo and maybe put that on my desktop wallpaper or something. Oh, that was just so go. fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh man. man. That, yeah. So the input agents, uh, like you said earlier, they're issued Winnebago, a, a swamp buggy, and a hot blonde. So we're talking about Martha and Walker, played by Santa Ringhaver and Dave Dickerson, respectively. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I guess apparently if you work for Impet, you've got to be attractive because they're both, you know, they look like models, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, they both, they come out of there and they don't look like scientists. You know, they just look like, <laughs> like you said, they're models. They're, they're like, super young. I don't know. <laughs> extremely attractive. Both of them have perfect hair. Yes. I mean, God, uh, it's just, it's, yeah, th those are scientists right there. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's those two, it's Rex and the sheriff, basically. They're the ones that know what's going on. They're the ones that have to stop the rampage of the monster and save the citizens from that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a fun ride. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I found myself I, really digging it. Even the second time in repeated viewings, I still enjoy this film. Yeah, now I have a question. You you saw the I haven't seen it with the commentary. Yes. There's the scene towards the end where Walker is running through the swamps and a snake comes at him. Okay. So yeah, what? here's the deal with the snake. It was supposed to bite him. Yeah. And unfortunately, the snake was dead and they ended up tying like a, a rope or a string to it to make it jump out at him. Oh god. Now <laughs> Okay. They they said in the commentary track that it was run over. Now, I don't know if it was something that they accidentally ran over. I, I hope it wasn't like they intentionally ran it over with a car so they could use it. Well, when I was young, I lived in Florida. Yeah. Um, and there's lots of places where there's snakes. And parents would actually run over snakes if they saw them on the road because, you know, it's a it could be a poisonous one and we don't wind up biting our kids. So okay. you, you would find snakes all over the road. Sure. Um and, and, you know, I mean, my parents did it, and it wasn't a malicious, let's kill that snake. It's like, let's take out this thing that could bite our kids. They're treated like a rodent or a, yeah, I understand. Yeah, you know, so, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they just found a snake on the road. I didn't realize they used a string I, or on a dead snake. I was wondering if that was intentional or just this, suddenly it's like, oh, there's a snake. Holy cow. <laughs> yeah, he was supposed to have gotten poisoned by the snake, too. So there's a few shots afterwards where he's kind of limping. Yeah. Funny. I mean, you see him try to treat the wound. Yeah, I don't think he got all the poison out because by the end of the movie, he's looking in pretty sad shape. Yeah, they all are. Oh, yeah. I mean, nobody comes out of this unscathed. I mean, I, I mentioned earlier that Rex saves the girl at the end, and he kind of does from one fate, but not from another. So <laughs> there's big questions as to what happens to her because, yeah. you know, I don't want to go spoilery on it if anybody hasn't seen it. But, yeah, nobody really makes it out very well. No. 
So there's a few other notes that I wanted to, to go over. I took some notes when I watched the commentary track. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I suppose somebody could say I'm spoiling the commentary track, but it's a great commentary track. So if you haven't watched it with the commentary track, I recommend it. Some of the things that I thought were interesting. Uh, first of all, the guy who played the sheriff, mm-hmm. Paul Galloway. So he is one of the people doing the commentary. And he mentions that when they first started shooting the production, he would just go home in costume and then come back the next day. Cause I mean, he's just wearing a sheriff's outfit. He's got a gun right. and a coat and a hat. When he was going home, he'd stop off somewhere and he was actually mistaken for a real sheriff every once in a while. <laughs> Because he, he wasn't really going to change a close of production. He'd just go home and, you know, he went into a, a, a place of business. And I can't remember if he said it was a bar or a restaurant or a convenience store or something. But they referred to him, hey, sheriff, how's it going? Oh, I'm, I'm not a sheriff. I'm just an actor. Oh, well, you know, looking like that, if we were held up, you'd be the first person they'd try to shoot. It's like, oh, well, I'm going to start bringing a change of clothes now. <laughs> <laughs> well, he does look the part. He really does. I mean, he really looks like you would expect a southern sheriff to look. Yeah. I know that might be stereotyping a little bit, but he really does have that look. He's totally believable. Oh, yeah. No, and he comments on that, too. He's like, yeah, it was, it was, you know, it was a typecast. It was a character thing, and yeah, it fits. Mm-hmm. You know, and listening to the commentary track is so delightful because it's these, these older people looking back on this movie they made back in the 70s. They've all got that accent, you know, and it's just like you can imagine them all sitting around drinking gin, talking about this movie. You know, it's just awesome. <laughs> now I'm going to have to watch that again. Oh, soon. oh darn. Oh, no. What I found interesting, and you said it looks really good and they found some original prints to make this transfer, it was shot on 35, Mm -hmm. but at one point the director, I think, if I understood correctly, he said the editing equipment they had only worked for 16, so they had to drop it down to 16 to edit and then blow it back up to 35 for distribution. Wow. I don't see that at all. I mean, I I don't think it looks like super crisp and clear 35 from today, but... Mm -hmm. I don't see a lot of degradation there from going down and then back up again. Some of that may have been when they did the restoration, they took care of it. But even if you, but if you look at the, cause I did look at the before and after bit they had for the restoration, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it is. It's really cool. It really shows you that, you know, it's not like they changed a whole lot. They just brought the colors and stuff back out. But if you look, it's really not that bad. No of an element that they had to work with. So that's surprising that they dropped it to 16 and then went up to 35 again. Yeah. We were talking about how they had all this equipment to work with. Apparently they just didn't have the 35 millimeter editing set up. So, I mean, that's amazing to me that they would do that. And, you know, they talk in the commentary track and we'll talk about it now. And I think you'll agree with me. This is just uh, a testament to the the fact that they had this drive to make this movie. They worked with what they had. They made it mm-hmm. work. There was an article I think I referenced it uh, before that uh, was that you can find online at jacksonville.com. I think that it was Galloway. He, he he was talking about the movie. Oh, here it is. Yeah, Paul Galloway. I think it was the best that could be done with what we had. And it really is. I agree, 100%. I mean, and that's one of the things that I love about some of these lower-budget movies from this era. I mean, everybody knows I love my classic black and whites. I love my Universal Monsters. I love my creature. I love John Agar. You know, I love all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But if you go back and you look at some of the lower-budget genre efforts from the late 60s, early 70s, and even into some of the 80s, you see this, we're going to get it done one way or the other, and we're not going to fix it in post. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love that approach because, I mean, today it's like, ah, oh, we'll just CG it out, you know, or we'll just put this in. You know, there's a, a level of falseness and unreality to it. Something like this, it feels real. Yeah, it feels low budget. There's the rotary phone on the computer, you know, and it doesn't <laughs> I still really make sense. Every time I, see, I think of that. But it's there, it's real, you know, and it, mm-hmm. it's tactile and it makes the movie feel 
more real to me. I know the temptation would be, you know, CGI the monster. No. No. But, you know, I mean, having the monster there gives it a weight behind it. There's something there. It's not someone <laughs> trying to fight something that isn't real, something that's put in in post. I mean, you could say the same thing about, like, uh, stop motion. They're not really there. You know, they were added in. But even those were figures that someone had to touch and control. Right. It wasn't just a stroke of a keypad. Right. You know, and there's something real about any time you film something that's actually there. Yeah. That's why I love the monster. I mean, I think the design was great. You know, I love the lamprey-like mouth because you find out that Leopold has to drink blood, too, <laughs> at some point. Well, yeah, the kid on the... Of uh, course porch. he does. <laughs> yeah, of course he does. But that makes the mouth extreme, which kind of looks like, what the heck? How is he going to eat with that? And then it's like, oh, it's a big straw. Okay. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Even if, you know, you say, God, that movie was not very good. You still have to give it to the people who made it because they sure. made it. Yeah. They and fit. there's and, some and, really good stuff in and it. And it too. wasn't just a couple of guys in a backyard. I mean, this was a relatively large production for what they were doing outside of the studio system. Yeah. They, they, had, I, they shot in four different cities in Florida. Mm-hmm. You know, they got the cooperation of Marineland. They had extras involved. I mean, this was a relatively large production for what it is. They had to film underwater. There's there's lots of underwater footage in this thing. There is, and people know my past. I thought I was going to be a movie maker when I grew up, and I was making movies with my video camera with my friends in my backyard when I was a kid. At community college, I was doing video production courses and things like that. I mean, I went to film school, mm-hmm. and I recognize a lot of things in that as things that I was trying to do when I was making movies, when I thought I was going to be a filmmaker. Um, when I hear stories in the commentary track about what they went through to make this movie happen. It's like, you know, and that's why I never finished. I didn't have the ability to, to get to the finish line the way that mm-hmm. these guys and gals did. They're doing things in here that I recognize as what I called tools of the trade when I was trying to do makeup effects. I wanted to do a bullet hit, so I used firecrackers as squibs. Well, that's exactly what they did in this movie. <laughs> now, I had a more complicated setup with uh, model rocket detonators and all that, whereas if they needed to do a bullet hit, they would light the firecracker manually and then run out of shot in real action. But, <laughs> and, which you don't actually see a lot of in the final film. A lot of those cuts didn't make it, but, no. you know, that's what they were doing because they, that's what they had. That's what they knew. And they made it work. Yeah. Just building a monster suit that complicated that goes underwater is a testimony to how much effort they put into getting this thing done. And for as heavy as it was, it weighed over 120 pounds. Oh, God. And they had this guy who was cast thanks to an ad in a newspaper somewhere. (laughs) They're looking for big people who don't have acting experiences to play a monster. I mean, hey, (laughs) and it worked. He actually had some acting experience. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Not that you really needed a a heck of a lot because the suit does so much already. Wayne Popwell, I think, needs some credit for not dying while wearing that thing. Oh, Um, I know. You know, a lot of those sets are not designed for this eight-foot-tall monster suit. <laughs> yeah, and if if you watch the well, outtakes... they're not even sets. They're locations, so... Yeah, and if you watch the outtakes, there's a couple of times where he bangs his head on a tree lamb. Yes. You know, and if you watch him trying to go up the stairs in the Marineland set oh, where... Man. Oh, Yeah, he's he can't see, obviously, because he has to find the wall and then turn. Yep. It, yeah, he did a great job. I mean, I... <laughs> Man, that would have been tough. Yeah. In the end, when it's the monster and the sheriff and the biologist, and they're in that location together, 
you don't see the floor, but in the, in the commentary track, they're talking about how there are all these pipes and knobs and everything on the floor that Galloway and Cruz could walk around and avoid and see. Mm-hmm. You get Popwell in there in the monster suit who can barely see through the nose holes in this suit that weighs 120 pounds, and he's ducking already to make sure he doesn't bonk his head, and he navigates it. Yeah, I, I think there's one or two scenes during his fight with Rex where he does trip. Yeah, towards the end, yeah. Yeah, but I mean... But that's an action scene, whatever, you know. Yeah, it's an action scene, and the monster is kind of struggling, so it worked. But he recovers from that really well. I mean, yeah. it looks like it's just part of his acting in the suit. Yep. The director said, you're going to stumble at this point and then come up. Well, I don't think that was the direction he got, but <laughs> he uh, he pulled it off. Here in a couple of days, we're going to have Chris back on the show, and we're going to talk about his trip to Florida and how it went when he went looking for some of the locations from the movies at. And of course, we're going to talk a little bit more about the film overall as well. So that's coming up here in a couple of days on Monster Kid Radio. MonsterKidRadio.net is our website. That's where you're going to find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. From here, you're going to find the show notes for every episode that we've talked about here on the show. And in those show notes, you're going to find links to everything, like the band that appeared this week. Again, that was Molokai. That's M-O-L-O-K-A-I. And then add a u.bandcamp.com to get to their website. Let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you their way. We also have links here for the monster rally retro awards or the rallies every year we're going to take a look at three years in monster movie dumb this year we're looking at 1931 41 and 51 and we're going to with your help determine who the best actor and actress were in these films who was the best director what was the best film and what was the best monster you can go right there right now go to tinyurl.com slash rallies two zero one five. This is going to take you directly to the ballot. Only one vote per person, please. And the deadline is June 7th. And no, you do not have to vote in every category. If you haven't seen the movies in question, that's okay. Also, you can always write in your own vote. If there's a movie that you think belongs on the ballot in the various categories, you can always add it yourself. The deadline, June 7th. And then later in June, we'll go over the winners of the rallies. Also at monsterkidradio.net, you can sign up for the Monster Rally Checkpoint. That's our monthly e-newsletter where we keep people up to date with everything going on with Monster Kid Radio, Monster Rally Media, and a few other things here and there. There's a regular monthly column in there called The Creature Connection, connecting Creature from the Black Lagoon to pretty much every other monster movie out there. Monster movie trivia and just a few other things along the way. It's something that I put out once a month. Of course, if you are a Patreon supporter at the Toho level or higher, you get the Monster Rally checkpoint a little early. Patreon, that's where you can support Monster Kid Radio monthly, financially, and get yourself some awesome rewards along the way while getting us to the higher milestones there that would allow us to launch other spin-off shows up to and including that original audio drama that I'm writing right now as we speak. Well, not exactly as we speak, but I am working on it now, and it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to that. Of course, the next milestone is to put out a monthly podcast called How to Make a Monster Kid Radio, which is a production journal behind the scenes, extra content, kind of just what I go through to put the show together. I'll try to make that interesting for everybody as well. Also on our website is our contact information. You can email us at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or give us a call by calling us at 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. Of course, we have a Facebook group as well where we have a poll going. And this month's poll is about John Agar. So go check that out if you're a user of Facebook. Of course, you can always like our Facebook page as well. 
Before signing off, we have an email from Alan Trump. He's been on the show a few times. He writes in, hey, Derek, really enjoyed the session you participated in on Lovecraftian themes in Hammer Films. One film I would suggest adding to the list is The Lost Continent. The weirdo monsters in that at least superficially look like something out of a Lovecraftian nightmare, especially the one-eyed green squid that attacks Susan Lee and that many-eyed hungry thing that lives under the Conquistador's ship. But I have to admit, the most impressive monsters in the movie have to be Dana Gillespie's enormous bosoms. I'm just like, really, Alan? Really? Anyway, uh, <laughs> The Lost Continent. You know, I, I think I've seen this one. This was one that came up over on 1951 Down Place in a conversation with somebody. And I did go and throw it in the DVD player. And yeah, it's kind of trippy. And I'm glad you enjoyed the Lovecraft Gets Hammered panel. That was a lot of fun to moderate at CthulhuCon. I do have a few other recordings from CthulhuCon and some other Lovecraftian ideas to bring to Monster Kid Radio perhaps next month for another Cthulhu Thursday. So stay tuned for that. Here, where a million years are but a moment. Here, where the present and the past tremble in the presence of the prehistoric. From here comes an adventure so big that only the big screen can do it justice. What is it? The Lost Continent, discovered in all its monstrous horror. Never come across anything like that before. A living hell that time forgot. This is the man who brought them to the lost continent to face the terrors of the past. The lost women on the lost continent. Her past drove her here. Didn't they expect me to leave with nothing? Her future begins here. life could end here. Now the horrors from the past meet headlong with the terrors of the future. Unless because it's dry. But one drop of water. Touch it. You will see torture pits for forbidden lovers. Barbaric sacrifice. Monster weed attack helpless beauties. Seed. Giant mollusks. See them fight to the death. Sea man struggled to destroy the evil of the lost continent. From the novel Uncharted Seas by Dennis Wheatley. Living hell that time forgot on the lost continent. (laughs) 
And so that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Like I said earlier, in two days, we're going to be back here with Chris McMillan to talk further about Zat and his adventures, checking out some of the locations where the film was shot. And then, of course, talking about the movie overall a little bit more as well. So come back for that. If you can't wait for more Chris McMillan, though, go check him out over at his website, The Shadow Over Portland. You can find that at shadowoverportland.blogspot.com. Of course, you can find a link to that over at our website as well. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Creepy Heap from the Deep. That belongs to the band Molokai. It's on their album Rack Attack 2.0. You can find them at molokaiu.bandcamp.com. Go show them some Monster Kid Radio love. Talk to everybody in a couple of days. (laughs) 